how about Barbara comes and we do meditation and mindfulness and neuroscience and Bach. So I said, that really sounds great. Now it's, so, so that's what we're doing. And uh, so we'll all of us be here all day long and we'll talk about mindfulness, neuroscience, and we'll listen to Bach. So we'll do listening meditation a fair amount of the time. And, you know, I was thinking the other night about, uh, just before we start, to tell you this one uh, introduction to, to listening as an art that just serendipitously was, if this is Saturday, night before last, on Thursday night, I was uh, in the Opera House for a, an orchestra rehearsal for the upcoming uh, Magic Flute. So an orchestra rehearsal is almost the dress rehearsal. It's not the dress rehearsal, but there are singers there. There's the orchestra's there, and the singers are there, and they sing. And it's wonderful to watch a story that you've seen or heard unfold before, and people are in absolutely in street dress, you know, and, uh, but walking around on the stage and, and marking out their places. And it, it wasn't uh, a, a, a run-through from the beginning to the end, as you often hear. It was the conductor with his uh, uh, list of, let's go to number 21, uh, bar three, and start there, and do the next five bars, the next five bars, the next five Let's do it again, and let's do it again, and let's do it again. And you over there, did you notice? Just a, it was, and he was wonderful because he'd say, that was great. Now, over here, did you notice that you were just a little half a beat behind? the singers when you came. Let's do it again. That was great. Now, did you notice that this over here was a little, so let's do it again. That was great. And the thing is, it was, it was a, 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 an exciting experience, first of all, to see this in progress. And it was exciting to hear it come together and together and together and together until it was really together. And when uh, Barbara and I and Cliff met the other day, and she was talking about practicing and listening until it comes together and together and together and together, until there's nothing that isn't part of this experience now. And you know, the, the conclusion or the, uh, the direction that that points to for me, and when I think about it in terms of mindfulness, is here we are training our uh, attention as much as we do, training the attention to be here, to be here, to be here, really to be here, no wisp of attention anyplace else, not only for the experience of resting in this moment, which is complete and beautiful and free of concerns of, unproblematic, I would say, it's free of worries of the future or regrets about the past, it's just this moment. In addition to the purity of being just this moment, is a possibility of something extraordinary emerging, some insight, some revelation, something we haven't known before. Really, we're doing this practice. The best translation for vipassana is clear seeing or insight. Something new happens, and we are transformed by the experience. So I, I, when I was at the... Uh, opera house the other night and listening and listening and listening and realizing that I was also transformed in my mind by listening so hard to hear as well as the musicians were hearing. So I was really looking forward to telling you that as a, 
as a beginning and introduction to this day. The only piece of uh, logistics I need to tell you is that if you have not signed up for CE units and you want to get them, you need to do that before we start. So you can do that if you haven't, but you probably have. So uh, I know Clifford for uh, some years now. We met around his uh, research, which he's done at Spirit Rock. He's an associate research neuroscientist at the Center for Mind and Brain and Mind Institute at UC Davis. He has two main research directions. The first investigates the effects of contemplative practices from a multidisciplinary perspective. The second concerns differences in sensory processing and multisensory integration in children with autism spectrum disorders. One of his goals is to combine these lines of work by introducing mindfulness-based practices to families, particularly parents, affected by neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism. An early project on this is underway at UCSF in collaboration with Spirit Rock teacher Will Kabat-Zinn and his wife, Teresa Lemondola. And Barbara has been playing cello with the San Francisco Symphony for 20 years. Before that, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> Before that, she lived in New York City where she attended the Juilliard School and had a very career as a freelance cellist, playing everything from Broadway shows, film sound tracks, and cruise ships to touring all over the world with New York chamber soloists and the New York Philharmonic. She and Cliff have been married for 24 years, and this is their first workshop together. And she'll begin by playing Bach. Thank you, Sylvia. First, I just want to say what a pleasure it is to be here today to share my music and my thoughts with you. Now, Sylvia has introduced Cliff and myself. I'd like to introduce you to my cello. This is Giovanni. Giovanni is named after his creator, who was Giovanni Battista Gabrielli, and he was made in 1752 in Florence, Italy. Giovanni and I have been together for 25 years, even longer than Cliff. <laughs> and as with most musicians and their instruments, we have a very close relationship. Now, about 25 years before Giovanni was created, the composer, Johann Sebastian Bach, wrote six monumental works for solo cello, which he called suites. And this was the first time ever in the history of music that any composer had thought to write music of such elaborate complexity for a single cello to play all by itself. Now, each of these six suites has six movements, or sections. And Bach began each movement, or each suite, rather, with a movement called prelude which was then followed by five popular dance movements of the time. Now, a prelude is a kind of free-flowing, continuous motion movement that welcomes the listener into the sound world of the cello and sets the emotional and harmonic tone for the whole suite that follows. I'm going to begin by playing the prelude from the first suite of Bach in G major. Now, today, rather than think of this as a concert performance, I'd like to try to integrate the music into our contemplative experience. So when I play, I expect no applause, even if you like it. <laughs> Instead, just allow the sound to linger in your mind and follow the music into silence. 
We will then sit together for just a few minutes until Sylvia rings the bell, and then she'll guide us into a longer sitting period. Now, I chose this particular prelude because G major is a very joyful key, generally, for Bach. And in this piece, he revels in the sonority of the four open strings of the cello, which are all present in the key of G. So, as a way of welcoming you into the sound world of my cello and the musical world of Bach, and to set a contemplative tone for the day and an introspective tone, this is the prelude from the first suite. Thank you. 
as we continue to sit together, let your body keep this relaxed focus. Perhaps you can extend the hearing meditation to hearing what's happening around in the room, the sound of silence. Letting your mind and body rest in their natural peace and ease. Perhaps using the heightened faculty of hearing to attend to the sounds in the room, the breathing of people around, sounds outside, sounds inside, allowing the attention just to rest alert enough to be present and relaxed enough to be completely at ease. It's likely that as you sit, we'll sit some few minutes more. It's likely that as you sit, the breath coming in and out of your body will become the most prominent experience you'll have. Breath comes and goes at its own regular rhythm. Like each other, but not identical. Perhaps you'll notice as you sit that the breath comes in Breath goes out, the body rests, and then the breath comes in and out, and it rests again on its own natural rhythm. You can use that rhythmicity as an aid to keeping your attention focused in this very moment, in this very place, feeling your whole body on the chair, on the floor, wherever they are, with your arms and your hands, wherever they are. This breathing being just now. We'll sit several more minutes.
or ring the bell and try as much as you can to listen to the bell for as long as you can hear it and then open your eyes. I think you're wonderful. And I think that probably everybody here shared with me a kind of really inhibit yourself because she said not to applaud, but we've how many people felt like it? <laughs> Good for you. What was that like for you? Let's make this into a meditation class. Why are we here with Barbara and Clifford and myself? What did you learn? What did you feel? How was that? Yeah. Uh, the first couple of notes I was just swept with um, just the intense beauty of it and just started crying. It was so beautiful. Just so moved by it. I just love that particular piece of music and it just, it just like, oh, just swept me away. Thank you very What's your name? Mary. Mary. Thank you very much. What else? You know, we'll, we'll make a little lesson out of this after a while, but let's first hear what happened. Thank you. Um, after you played your music, and then there was the quiet and the listening and the natural awareness of sound, and then you came back, and it was so silent, and so giving, like faith. Thank you. What's your name? Suzanne. Suzanne. Thank you, Suzanne. What else? There you go. Thank you. That was exquisite. I find that music, more than meditation even, has the capacity to transport me to that place, that transcendent place beyond myself. And I wish I could get to that same place with meditation, but <laughs> there's something about music which really takes me to that deep and joyful place. So. Uh, Thank you. What's your name? David. David. Thank you. Okay, uh, I too have always loved music and it takes me to that place. Um, however, a year and a half ago I had a sudden hearing loss in one ear, so I really mourned the loss of stereo music. Though I've been going through some adjustments um, neuro neurologically, um, since then, um, and I do find if I cut my ear, cup, I, 
I can get a sense of stereo and I can really narrow in on listening to music. And so it really has uh, increased my focus. Um, and then when the music stopped, uh, another lovely thing is the tinnitus in my deaf ear. So I go from the beautiful cello and Bach to uh, a humming sound, which affects my meditation and breathing because I can't even hear my breathing on equally. And then on the one hand, it gives me something to focus on. And on the other hand, it distracts me from focusing on something more pleasant. So mm -hmm. I just want to say that the whole... It really ties in with everything that my brain is going through with some music, meditation, and neuroscience. Tell me your name. Oh, I'm Julia. Julia. There's somebody right over here. I've heard this piece before, but today I felt as if I were hearing it for the first time in all its freshness and newness. My name is Anne. <clears throat> I felt the spaciousness as I leaned into the longer notes, as if the space was expanding inside myself. And as well as the spaciousness, I had many associations. This is the piece a cellist friend played at my wedding. And my son, who is a cellist, also played it. So I had the experience of the many layers of um, many layers of my past, as well as the emptiness and bliss of this moment. My name's Edie. I feel that I have to say something, and yet I don't know how to say it. Because uh, there's something about, how do you say it in words, integration, but how it is that your breath and your hearing, your physical, your mental, your emotional, is such a... So integration is the wrong word for, it, for me. It's a wholeness. And, uh, and Bach, certainly, knowing him all my life, anyway, just hearing that, so full that it almost can take just sitting, hearing, and yet knowing not where that leaves or what that It really is so connected. It's the most beautiful thing, process of life. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. Hi, <clears throat> I'm um, a beginning piano player, and I'm working on a Bach prelude. Uh, so first of all, your introduction of what the prelude is about, I never quite knew that. It made so much sense. And, you know, because I'm trying to learn to play this thing, it's really hard to, your description of it, just flowing kind of endlessly. And as I listened to it, I was able to really take it into my body in a way that I haven't been able to when I'm trying to play it and uh, made me want to run home right now and 
try and play it one more time. My name's Liz. I've loved classical music for years, go to concerts, have a collection, and cello has always um, been sort of like mood music for me. Um, I'm definitely familiar with this piece, and I found myself sort of swaying to it, listen, being able to listen to it in this meditative environment versus listening to it in the context of, of a full uh, symphony orchestra with other instruments playing, I felt, was really able to feel how the music rippled all the way up and down through my body. It was an amazing sensation. Thank you so much. My name is Roberta. Do you want to say something about what Roberta just said? We have a, I, I think we should maybe have some responses to all these marvelous... Well, first, I have to say, I've never had such an appreciative audience. <laughs> so please come to all my concerts. <laughs> uh, I really liked what Jack said. In fact, that's exactly what my talk is going to be about, the integration and the connection between the technical, the physical, the emotional, the composer's intention. That's something that I've really thought a great deal about. And it segues beautifully into what I'm going to say, so as soon as we're ready. Have a nice introduction, so. Thank you. I also wanted to say something about some of those uh, responses, and probably Cliff did too. Uh, I wanted to say something about Mary's uh, use of uh, the term swept away uh, to begin with, that uh, sometimes I, uh, I find uh, that listening to music as uh, the compelling focus of attention as it was, the compelling and beautiful uh, focus of attention, somehow has the effect of sweeping out of what my, uh, my uh, what's ever around me, all the little stuff that my attention might focus on, the, the leftovers of my day, or who said what to whom, or maybe what I'm worried about, or I shouldn't have said that to so-and-so on the telephone, all the little past and future pulls on the attention that uh, one hopes will fall away as one brings one's attention, say, to the breath or to the body or to the movements as we walk or move. And it will, but there's something uh, extraordinarily uh, uh, extra about having something beautiful to focus on. We normally are focusing on something that's a neutral sensation, just our bodies and our breathing, which, by the way, is a miraculous and extraordinary thing to focus on. And every once in a while we realize this is not nothing. This is an amazing experience. This is a body that's breathing. Wow. But it doesn't, it's not an everyday thing that we sit down and think this is a body that's breathing. Wow. We think, oh, I shouldn't have, or what will I, or this, or that, or the other. And this sweeps it away and say, whoa, here I am. And someone right after that said, um, and very silent. And I think, I, I think of silent not so much in the absence of sound, but the absence of uh, confusing things that are pulling on my attention, whether they are actually sounds, actual auditory sounds, or stories in the mind, that uh, it, it seems to me such a, um, 
a, a verification of the third noble truth that peace is possible. We can, in this mind, be quite alert and not be having a problem with anything. Mind has just put down everything and it's just abiding. And it does that wide awake. It doesn't have to be thinking or not thinking. Sometimes people say, I can't empty my mind of thoughts. And I really, I'm eager to tell people, you don't have to empty it of thoughts. I mean, you know, I feel great as a thought. You know? <laughs> I feel peaceful as another thought. <laughs> and to really feel peaceful, I don't need anything. My cup runneth over. This moment is sufficient to itself. What were you going to say, Cliff? Well, let's see. Am I on here? Yeah. Okay. So I'm perpetually grateful to be so close to Barbara. Um, so in the silence, I heard the music of the sounds of nature and the, the world around us. And to me, when a composer captures some deep truth about the nature of lived experience in sound, there is, I think Jack got it quite interestingly close, it's beyond integration because there is coming back at you some understanding of human experience connected to natural world outside you, interpreted through the genius of a composer, adding some quality of emotion. Other things related to neuroscience and plasticity I'll reserve for my talk. Well, I, I, I maybe maybe have some more questions, but I had I had two more thoughts as you spoke. I think that our that in addition to uh, the the effect of of, of uh, the transformative effect of the of the beauty that causes the mind. Somebody said it was David who said transcend. And so he, like here's all this stuff stuff of our lives with its normal pull on our attention, just making whatever uh, low-grade even pulls on the attention, but we're not all here. And here's the music, and we pass over that, and we say, wow, look at this, alive, whole, happy. You know, in, in, in uh, meditation practice, in mindfulness practice, I know many of you are long-time practitioners, and you probably uh, have learned the school of practice that suggests making mental uh, notations for what's going on, lifting, moving, placing, worrying, being aggravated, uh, anticipating, oh, uh, throbbing, 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 whatever. Uh, uh, people say, but what if I'm happy? I say, really, the mental note at that point, if you were to, to say a mental note, is happy, content, peaceful. Alive, awake, free, liberated, any of those things. And I was thinking how, uh, notwithstanding that it's such a gorgeous experience, we each have our own experience. We have the experience of realizing that we've lost our hearing, for instance. And the, and the uh, mourning that happens when we realize, I don't have a faculty that I used to have that gave me so much pleasure. And to recognize, uh, as we recognize, that 
that's a normal way in which a mind would respond. We recognize when we miss someone, when they're not in our lives anymore. And the mind wishes that it were different. And the ability of the mind to wish that it was different and be all right in what it is seems to me one of the ways of describing the point of contemplative practice. There's so many things that we wish were different and that and say, I wish it were like this. This isn't what I wanted, but it's what I've got, and this or that in our lives. And to be able to really mean it, this is what I've got, and it's still a great thing to be alive. It's a gorgeous thing to be alive. It's an amazing thing to be alive. I think in some way that maybe be the, one of the ways that I like to say that was really the, the great insight that the Buddha taught. It's that we could be fine, peace is possible, with the stuff of our lives because everybody has a life with stuff and we miss it when we don't have something that we had anymore. I've, I've, in my own experience as I was sitting, I find my, my mind is pulling on the music after it's pe- passed as if I could get it to continue by, uh, by holding it somehow in my mind. I sometimes realize that when the bell is finished ringing and it's gone, I'm leaning over to hear the end of it. And then I, as I sat here, and you did too, many of you probably had the experience of hearing the birds. I say, all right. Now my ears are woken up. I can hear that. And I can hear the breathing. And I'm alive. Do you want to teach a little bit now? Sure. Okay, I'm going to talk for a few minutes about practice as balanced mindfulness. And actually the seeds of this talk were planted in my mind back in the mid-1980s. The first time I attended a meditation retreat at IMS, the Insight Meditation Society, in Barrie, Massachusetts, which you probably know is the sister institution of Spirit Rock. And I went to this 10-day retreat because my boyfriend at the time that guy over there, (laughs) was going to the retreat, and he didn't exactly drag me, but let's say he strongly encouraged me to come. That was taught by two guys with very Buddhist-sounding names, Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein. (laughs) Now, at that time, I had no background in Buddhist teachings. I had never studied the Dharma, and I had very little meditation experience. So I was kind of reluctant to agree to sit in silence for 10 days over my Christmas vacation. (laughs) But I was also very curious to explore this insight meditation stuff that was so important in Cliff's life. And as I listened to Jack and Joseph talk, I was very surprised to find that certain parts of the teaching sounded very familiar to me. Jack talked about, let's be aware of the feeling of your body on the cushion or the chair. Follow the flow of your breath. Move your attention to energy in different parts of your body. Deep listening to the sounds around you. And I thought, well, gee, isn't this exactly what I do every day when I sit down to practice the cello? In fact, it's something I've been doing since I was eight years old. Now, fast forward 25 years, one marriage, two kids, and many retreats later. And this past November, I sat a retreat here at Spirit Rock with Stephen and Martine Batchelor. And Stephen talked about how learning to meditate was very much like learning to play an instrument. And then I thought, yes, 
I've had that thought for so long. It is so similar. And it really led me to consider even more deeply the parallels between my practice, cello practice, and the other kind of practice, which is sitting meditation. Now, when I play, I have to be extremely conscious of the musculature of my arms and hands, not the names of the muscles or where they connect with each other, but the functional use of them. I need enough physical strength to play the notes and produce a good sound, but not too much tension to impede the flow of the sound or cause myself pain. In fact, it's very easy to cause pain or injury if you're not extremely conscious of what you're doing. And many of my musician colleagues have developed all variety of uh, overuse and repetitive stress injuries. And without sufficient mindfulness of how one uses the body, that's actually one of the hazards of the jobs of being a professional musician. Now, when I first sit down to the cello, I try to feel the stability of my feet on the floor, my sits bones on the chair, and I set the intention of feeling a connection all the way up my spine through my torso into my arms, hands, and bow. I have a deep awareness of my breath. In fact, musicians all often talk about breathing with the music, or other times we say, I want to allow the music to breathe. One of my teachers once said, breathe through the soles of your feet when you play the cello. Now, in performance in particular, it's very important to cultivate the ability to anchor our physical sensations and be grounded on the floor in the chair. And that provides a focus that can help dispel performance anxiety in a particularly distracting or nerve-wracking situation, like a big concert or a very important audition. And this grounding enables you to maintain a feeling of emotional openness in order to communicate what's really important, the expression of the composer. I often feel that the two bodies, the cello and myself, are becoming one. And my arm, hand, and bow feel like they're one long appendage, not really separate from each other. That's something Cliff will talk more about, in particular with the implications in the brain of that continuous use of the bow. And he told me about some experiments that were done with non-human primates and the use of tools. I won't tell you all the details yet, but when he explained about that research on the monkey brains, my first thought was, yes, of course that's right. That's not just my imagination. And then my next thought was, we could probably teach those monkeys to play the cello, too. <laughs> and he'll talk more about that later. So in order for you to understand what practicing is like for me, I need to explain some basic points about the cello. You're probably aware that unlike a piano or a fretted instrument, the notes don't already exist on the cello until you find them. I have just four strings. They're tuned A, D, G, and C. And if I want to play any other notes but those four, I need to figure out where they are and then draw the bow across the strings in a way that makes a pleasant sound so you can hear them. Making music requires awareness of many aspects of my body and emotions while I'm playing. Of course, the physical motions of creating sound and finding the notes and constant adjustments of the fingers to fine tune the pitch, the volume, quality, variety of sound. And then most importantly, translating these motions into the emotions, the musical concepts and feelings that I want to project to the audience. And that's based upon my interpretation of the composer's meaning in his music. Now, in performing the music of Bach, I think a great deal about what he had in mind when he wrote the music, 
Why did he choose those notes in that particular order with this rhythmical idea? In order to understand this music, I need to study the harmonic, structural, and stylistic interpretation and of the music and culture of the Baroque period, which is when he wrote. And then in order to achieve this synergy of physical motion and emotional communication and performance, I must spend many, many hours alone in a room with just the cello and my own awareness. And this is what I call practice. Now what I'm striving for when I practice the cello is what I call a balanced mindfulness, a non-judgmental, neutral appraisal of the sound that's being made moment to moment. Now, since most of you are meditators, uh, that sounds very familiar, I'm sure. Now, as music students, we often get frustrated with our inability to accomplish something we think we should be able to do. My students say, my progress is too slow. I've practiced it a million times. Why can't I get it? I should be able to do this by now. And I say to them, when it comes to learning the cello, we're all Buddhists. We need to cultivate this dispassionate error signal, accepting yet discerning towards the sounds that we make. Oh, of course, sometimes we all practice mindlessly without really listening carefully. And then when it happens to me, which it frequently does during practice, I just bring the mind back to the music, gently returning the focus to the cello. No wonder it sounded so familiar when I did my first meditation retreat. And if we're really able to cultivate a deep listening, then this increases our powers of observation and critical evaluation and causes us to make necessary adjustments in our playing as we go along. More precise intonation or pitch, a richer vibrato, more beautiful quality of sound. A continued repetition of the new ways of playing gradually leads to greater improvement and an even deeper listening. And as we integrate this into daily practice, new habits replace the old. And eventually, hopefully, in a performance, the improved ways will come more naturally. This process is repeated over and over throughout our lifetime. In fact, one of the things that makes learning an instrument so rewarding throughout life is the continuous opportunities for growth and learning and improvement. Now, I'm going to pick up my cello so I can give you a couple of specific examples. Now, the details of practicing might be very interesting to explore, so let me be very concrete here for a moment. Now, when I commit to practicing for a performance, I set a complex agenda that has elements of physical flexibility, memory training, and careful listening to form the arc of the musical phrases. I have to work out exactly how I want my fingers to move, where I choose to play each note, and all the different varieties of what we call sound color. I'll just give you one example. For instance, if I play this note, middle C, there, I can play that note on any of my four strings. I can play it here on the A string. I can play the same note on the D string. I can play it up here on the C string, on the G string. It's here somewhere. There it is. And I can also play it on my lowest string as a kind of harmonic. So one of the decisions I make is, well, where do I want to play that C? And it depends a lot on context. Let's say I want a really strong and full sound. So I'd probably play it there on the A string. But maybe in another passage, I'd want a more covered, uh, softer quality. So maybe I'll play it on a slightly darker, more covered string. And then I might want a particularly edgy sound. 
so I'd play it up there on the G string, which has a slightly uncomfortable quality. And then I might, at another time, want to have a very wispy and um, barely audible sound. So I'd play it as a harmonic on the C string. And then there's the variables of the bow, the bow speed, pressure, and placement. Let's say I want to have an extremely uh, quick, sharp attack. Then I would just draw a very hot, a lot of pressure and pull the bow very fast. And let's say on another passage I want um, a really full, fat sound that sort of starts quietly and then develops as it goes. Oh. So I start with a very slow bow speed and then gradually increase it as I continue. Um, there are a lot of different variables. And I have to make a choice about every single note that I play with all of the different variables of left hand and right hand. Now the reality of practicing an instrument can be a struggle much of the time. And if you've ever practiced an instrument as a child, or maybe you have a child who makes unpleasant squawks and squeaks on a daily basis, then you know what I'm talking about. But even at a professional level, I may practice a difficult passage that lasts 20 seconds, hundreds and hundreds of times, slowing it down so that I can discern exactly what the technical problems are. Are my left and right hands not coordinating accurately? Is my bow going too fast and the left fingers are shifting too slowly? Are the connections between the notes too choppy? I can give you an example of that, of struggling with that. At the end of the Bach prelude that I played, there's a passage where um, you, Bach has one continuous note pedal, a D, and then he starts going up the scale. So he, there's a very difficult coordination of the changing from the upper string to the next string. It's this kind of emotion back and forth. And when I first started to learn it, it was very uneven. And so I had to take it apart and try to figure out how do we make that motion? How should I make that motion to get the maximum smoothness and control? Do I initiate it from my shoulder? Should I try to do it just from the wrist bobbing up and down? Or should it just be a finger motion? And through experimentation and study, I figured out that, and any student who's learning a passage such as that would have to figure this out as well. Uh, the least possible motion is if you initiate it right from the fingers and then allow a little bit of flexibility in the wrist as well. So I would slow it down very, very slowly for a long time. And we used to have those little tick-tock things with a pendulum, the metronomes, you've probably seen those. Well, they still exist somewhere, but now everybody's iPhone has a metronome app. <laughs> Mine does, so I just put metronome app and I decide the tempo that I want to have ticking for myself. I still use it, we all do. And I might start it very slowly. And then gradually, over many, many days, increase the, the tempo a little bit. 
And if I find that, okay, here it was a little uneven, then I go back to slowing it down. Um, again and again, many, many times over, until I have figured out the problem and allowed myself to very, over a very gradual period of time, we call it notching it up until I can play it in tempo. Now, in addition to these technical issues, I'm always working towards crafted, crafting a connected, flowing communication of my understanding of the composer's intentions, filtered through the interpretation of my own life experiences. I'll go into this more. In the afternoon, I'm going to talk more about interpretation and how I arrive at my musical interpretation. Now, not surprisingly, thousands of hours of repetition cause changes in my brain over time. And this is, has to do with neuroplasticity, which you'll hear more about from Cliff a little bit later. And it actually takes about 10,000 hours of practice to gain expertise in almost any complex skill, such as learning an instrument to a professional level. And the really unfortunate news is that these skills naturally ebb away when I'm not practicing the cello. So it really takes a huge amount of right effort in order to stick with this task over a lifetime of maintaining a high level. Um, there's another example I can tell you very briefly, which I'll show as an example on the cello, where when I was practicing something, it really brought back my meditative experience in particular the, the things that I learned doing a long retreat. Um, I, I was realizing after listening to myself on a tape several years ago that my sound, my legato, my melodic sound had a kind of a choked quality and I felt that the string wasn't vibrating fully. Sort of sounding if I can duplicate it. Uh, that the string wasn't really vibrating. And when I heard the tape, I was very surprised because it wasn't the sound I thought I was producing. And it certainly wasn't the kind of sound that my favorite cellist, such as Yo-Yo Ma, could produce and the kind of sound that I was striving for. And so I, I really wanted to figure out why was I having this choked sound. And um, you can go to a teacher for help, but at this time, I has already been doing a lot of teaching myself, and I thought, I really should be able to figure this out, because I can help my students find their best sound. So let me try to find out my own best sound. So I basically deconstructed how I drew the bow, going back to the most basic aspects of just drawing the bow across the string. And I thought about at the walking meditations, how the teacher would say, pay attention to the intention to lift your foot as you walk back and forth across the path. So not even just the walking, but the beginning of the intention to lift the foot and where does that originate and how do we lift the foot. And so I tried to find where am I creating this tension? Where am I choking the sound? And I realized after a while that I had some tension in my upper arm right here. And when I drew the bow with attention, it affected the whole way that the instrument vibrated. And so by many, many hours of slow deconstructing, just being so careful and um, connected with my intention of raising the arm, lifting the arm, relaxing up here, uh, after a while, I was able to very consciously um, just relax my upper arm when I started to play.
And it took a long time of practicing that, but eventually I was able to integrate that into my playing so that the sound became more the round, expansive sound that I was looking for. Now, there's a book written by the Dalai Lama called The Universe in a Single Atom. You may have read. It's a wonderful book. And we could say the musical corollary is the, the universe in a single note. I'm going to tell a brief story about Pablo Casals, who was one of the greatest cellists of the 20th century. He was from Catalonia, which is now a part of Spain. He was born in 1876 and lived all the way till 1973. He had a very long and extremely uh, rewarding and productive life. And Casals actually is responsible for our listening to the Bach cello suites today. The suites had really um, kind of disappeared after Bach's death, and they were rarely performed and not well known at all by the musicians or the public until Casals, as a young cello student, discovered uh, a copy of the suites in a used music store in Barcelona in 1890. And he instantly realized what a treasure he had discovered. Um, and he spent the next 12 years practicing them and studying them until he felt ready to perform them in public. And Casal single-handedly brought these suites to the concert-going public. And then many other cellists jumped on the idea after hearing them and hearing how successful they were and what great pieces. And now, over the years, they really have become a staple of cello repertoire. Now, Casals had many students throughout his life. Some of the most well-known cellists in the world today studied either with him or some of his disciples. He also founded a number of music festivals around the world, including this, the Casals Festival in San Juan, Puerto Rico, where he brought musicians from all over the world to play together. I was lucky enough to attend the Casals Festival one year, performing in the Casals Festival Orchestra, and it was uh, five years after he had died, it was 1978. But many of the players remembered him, and they told vivid, wonderful stories about the great maestro. And my favorite story about Casals is uh, when someone asked him, Maestro, what is the most difficult thing about playing the cello? And this was at a public master class, so all the students were gathered around and they were waiting. What's he going to say? And they said, one thought, oh, he's going to name this very difficult uh, Prokofiev concerto. It's the most difficult thing ever written. And other people thought, no, he's going to pick some very complicated bowing, like a flying staccato. And someone said, no, I bet he'll say the Paganini caprices. And so Casals thought for a minute, and he said, the most difficult thing about playing the cello is finding where to put my first finger down every morning when I start to practice. <laughs> uh, I thought that's, that's such a great story. What he's talking about is the perfection of a single note, focused, balanced, and aware. When we play, we are constantly returning our awareness to the sound, making the same corrections over and over as he did for 94 years. How do we play the bow across the string with a rich, full tone and allowing the string to fully vibrate. As with meditation practice, for me, every practice session is a fresh start. I go back to the beginning, breathe deeply, and try to quiet my too active mind. One time, after I sat a six-day retreat here at Spirit Rock several years ago, I had to go directly from the retreat to a rehearsal with the San Francisco Symphony at Davies Symphony Hall. So I had Giovanni with me in my retreat room. He was quiet in his case for the whole six days. And then after breakfast on the last day, I 
went, walked to the car, put the cello in the car, and I drove right to Davies Hall. And I thought, well, since I haven't touched the cello for a, a week, I better at least practice for an hour before the rehearsal starts, just to kind of get myself warmed up. So I went down to one of the practice rooms we have in the basement at Davies Hall, and um, I started to tune. And normally, tuning is just four strings. It's a pretty quick process, and maybe it'll take a minute if you're very out of tune and have to just carefully balance. Well, this time I tuned for 30 minutes. And those of you who have sat retreats, you know how your awareness of so many aspects of normal life changes that you don't even realize, so that when you return to normal life, you are acting very differently in the world. And I had so deepened my listening awareness that the mere act of tuning four strings, which would take a minute or less, now took me 30 minutes. So with this in mind, I'd like to play one of the other movements from the first suite. This one's called Sarabande. Now, the five movements that follow the prelude in each of the suites are dance movements, popular dances at the time, with names like Minuet, Courant, and Allemande. And the Sarabande is the fourth movement, and it's the only slow movement in all of the six. So it's really the first moment of repose that the listener would hear. Now, you may not have heard of Sarabande before, but in the 18th century, anyone who would have heard the Bach suites knew exactly what the Sarabande is. It's a very slow and stately dance in 3-4 time. It's elegant and stylized with specific movements of dance for each of the steps of the, of the beat. Now, unlike most dances in 3-4 time, like a waltz or a minuet, that has a natural accent on the first beat, like a 1-2-3, 1-2-3, the sarabande has the accent on the second beat. So it's like 1-2-3, one, 1-2-3. Two, three, one, two, three. And this rhythmical idea has the effect of obscuring the rhythm, actually. And so sometimes the listener is not really sure what beat you're on. And Bach, of course, knew this. And he used this device to create a somewhat enigmatic, pensive, long melodic line that carries you along a sea of harmonic invention. So let's just take a moment to take a deep breath. And just like after the prelude, when I finish the sarabande, we'll let the sound uh, just fade off. Oops, I don't want to fall off the edge here. We'll let the sound fall off, fade off, not fall off. Fade off into silence. And then after a few minutes of sitting quietly, I'll take some questions.
So we could take a few minutes for questions, I guess, if anybody has anything particular that you'd like to ask. Go ahead, over here. Uh, my question is this. Um, a dear friend of mine who is a composer and vocalist was asked to perform for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And she spoke to him, and other, other uh, musicians were also asked to perform in, in L.A. a few years ago. She asked him afterwards what music he listened to. And he said he doesn't listen to music at all. And um, I wanted to know your thoughts about that. I suspect it has to do with uh, how powerfully music evokes emotion. Um, that's my thought about it. I, I, I don't know. Um, and, I, and specifically, I wanted to ask you about your experience when you are playing music that someone else's music. I mean, for example, when you played the prelude, um, there's, you said there was such joy in it, and I certainly felt that. I felt ecstatic joy in it. And I, it evoked that in me, and I'm sure it evoked it in other people. I mean, that's what music does, I think. It just brings out what is within uh, human beings. What do you do when, as a musician, you're asked to play a piece of music that evokes emotions that are difficult for you, or that, or to play music that, because of what it evokes, you don't really like that music? Um, what is your experience of that? How does sure. that? Well, that's a great question, and I will talk quite a bit about interpretation and expression in in the afternoon, but um, just sort of briefly to answer that. Well, first of all, I, I don't know why the Dalai Lama doesn't listen to music. I can't speak for that. Um, but uh, in terms of when we perform, just as an actor run, has to, part of our training, part of an actor's training is to be able to express all the emotions in Shakespeare. And myself as well, I often play pieces that are very poignant, sad, uh, very powerfully um, full of grief or very painful emotions. And um, it's a complex process because one, as a singer, will tell you, you, you the singers like to say, if I play a piece that's very, very sad, the audience should be crying, not me. So if I'm totally lost in my deep, sad, mournful emotions, then I can't really play with the kind of uh, awareness that I need to. So um, it is a complex process, but I, I really do try to, to get to a place in myself where I can express whatever my pain and, and anguish is through uh, the composer's voice, but uh, I have to maintain the discipline of being able to play physically while I do that as well. I actually thought that you said that there was something that you said that led me to think that before, that it might be different if you're um, a soloist playing and uh, the music is yours to interpret, yes. in a sense, because right. everybody has a different interpretation. But if you are playing with an ensemble, with a symphony orchestra, mm -hmm. uh, it, it seem, or, or as you know, someone playing for the opera, is the intent to make, a, make yourself a channel for what the composer meant to 
Well, that's an excellent, excellent point. And when I play in the San Francisco Symphony, I have a different job than I do when I'm playing by myself. My job now is to communicate my feelings about the composer's intention. When I'm in the San Francisco Symphony, my job is to communicate Michael Tilson Thomas or whoever the conductor is, his intentions as expressed in rehearsal and in how he communicates. So I'm a channel for the conductor's interpretation. That's a different activity. Uh, if I'm in a chamber ensemble, say a string quartet, then the four of us together work out through hours and hours of discussion and argument and head bashing and uh, trying things different ways, we work out our own interpretation. But um, as Sylvia says, uh, playing in a symphony is a very different uh, professional activity. And there I basically give up a lot of my creative decisions to the conductor, and that's his job. I was also thinking, and then, well, I, I know you want to, and John's a musician, he's going to ask a question. I was also thinking, as you were describing the hours and hours and hours of practice, that uh, it be, and repetition in the fingers, and first of all, I had this flash of, uh, I wondered if uh, uh, you've ever done uh, fMRI studies on Barbara, and you know what parts of her brain are bigger than others. <laughs> I was thinking what must could be going on in this part of the brain, this part of the, this, her, her left arm, her right arm must be different from her left arm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we call that bilateral transfer, from one <laughs> hand to the other. Uh, but I was thinking about becoming a conduit, in which case all of you, including the instrument, is, is just present, uh, that the instrument is, is a part of your body, so to speak. And, and Without a complication, the music arises out of it as, a, as any kind of an action that a person does arises more or less spontaneously. It's not, it's, it's not random, so it's, in that sense it's not spontaneous, but it's as a result of a whole lifetime of practice. I was thinking of the one little parallel, it's a big parallel, between uh, uh, practicing music and becoming a virtuoso at it and practicing meditation, because I, 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 I think it goes without saying that we are not meditating to become good meditators, but to become the kind of uh, people that we might really fully be in an ethical, moral, loving, generous, not contracted in any way with, uh, with uh, any impediments. Uh, I remember reading once a definition of compassion where it said, Every impediment that bars the door of the heart from opening fully will be uh, pushed aside from meditation. So whether or not we think that all the time as we sit down to meditate, but uh, uh, I was thinking that with a, with a musician you could see, I'm getting better, I'm getting better, I'm getting closer, I'm getting closer, I'm getting closer. How would we see that I'm getting to be, I've made any progress with my Meditation is not how many breaths can I take in a row without being distracted. Is not relevant. Uh, I mean, because we're not doing this to be breathers or pulmonologists. But uh, really, what would be the what would be the the um, cognate of it? And it seems to me, uh, I think to myself, uh, my test for myself at any time during the day of am I in tune as could I, at this moment, do I, am I able to love? At this moment, do I care? That's what I think about. Not do I know where I'm breathing. 
uh, and not that I forget where I put my glasses, which I often do, but it doesn't have to do with, with uh, what I really hope to have happen from practice, which is I hope to remove those impediments so that at any moment I'd be capable of loving, not having a problem with what's in this world and what's in my life. That would be a, a liberated person. And uh, I think that we have the, the brain capacity to practice that as well. And we know when we're off. You know what I like to think about? Barbara's showing how I'm watching you too as you move the, you know, your finger microscopically. I, I like to watch uh, flocks of birds in the migration uh, seasons. You see a whole flock of birds in beautiful synchronized flying, and someone is leading, and they're going along. And sometimes the leader turns back, and then they all turn back, and they go this way. But they go a little bit, and then they turn, and they go back again. And they have an internal compass that tells them this, you're not, you weren't going in the right direction. So that when you, you know, when you, you have an internal compass, I think that what I'm working on in my meditation is developing that internal compass that says, you, you, you must be distracted because your ability to love or to care or to be uh, glad to be here isn't here. Anyway, that, uh, John was going to say something. I um, really appreciated your uh, comments about um, tuning up after a, a long retreat. Um, and um, for me, the um, um, playing music and meditating are really a fused where it, the meditation is part of my practice to warm up, to be able to play. Um, it's so different after a retreat or after a long sitting. I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on, and perhaps Sylvia too. I, I don't know if you still play your violin, Sylvia, but um, maybe both of you could talk a little bit about that effect of a long retreat. And then when you don't have to give a performance, when you're not going to a concert, but just playing on your own, what, how that impacts you and, and your playing. And uh, I'd love to hear some elaboration on that. Okay, well... Um Doing a retreat or meditating does have an impact on my playing, a, a very good impact. It, it causes me to just be able to be more in the moment and to deepen my listening so that I'm listening even more carefully to the variables, to the variations, which is why it took me so long to tune the cello. I mean, just listening after I did that retreat to these fifths. I mean, that's not really perfectly in tune. And uh, I kept making the finest adjustments to hear the, the uh, perfect fifths. And I kept not being satisfied with what would have satisfied me, definitely, if, before I did the retreat, because my, my hearing was just so fine-tuned. And of course, for a long period of time after that, all of practicing was that way. And this is really how it should be practicing very slowly, and the best uh, musicians in the world do practice slowly all the time. I have a friend who, um, I don't know if you know the wonderful cellist Mstislav <coughs> Rostropovich, who died a few years ago, but um, I knew his daughter who studied, unfortunately, the cello also at Juilliard. Um, she didn't have a 
great time with the cello. You can imagine having a father like that, but um, she did tell stories that when he would practice, he practiced so slowly, even pieces that he had played many, many, many years, that they had to leave the house. They just couldn't stand <laughs> <laughs> to hear that slowed down practice. And I mean, this is somebody whose hearing is, I don't, I doubt that he was a meditator, but he had the most incredible ability to uh, listen with such concentration and focus. And so that is what I try to cultivate when I, when I meditate or when I do a retreat, that kind of uh, focused awareness. And um, if I'm really in that kind of a space, then I have the freedom to not think about playing at all and just feel that I'm uh, an open sort of vessel to channel what the composer is trying to say. Thank you. Maybe one or two more because we need to do a walking meditation. How about back here? We have time this afternoon. We'll have many times. I wonder if you ever find yourself clinging to sounds you particularly like. I, I notice that I prefer the higher, faster tempo sounds to the lower, slower sounds, and, and wanting to almost hold on to them and not give them up, even though I know in my mind that the slower, lower sounds set the stage for the higher, more joyful sounds. And this, this quality of, of kind of clinging to what we like and what we don't like, and even just clinging to the constant evaluation of course, you know, takes us away, and then I find myself, oh, I've kind of missed some notes. And I, I wonder what your experience is. My name is Saul. Yes, it's exactly the same as your experience. Um, there's, as I'm playing, there are certain notes that I especially like. Oh, that's a great second finger vibrato. I like, I wish I could play that note longer, but of course I can't. But um, <laughs> it's more likely that I'll, I'll be thinking about, oh, that note was a little out of tune. Oh, why did I not change my bow faster here? And to keep the loop going of, hearing what I just played that I didn't like. Uh, and that's something we all struggle with. We absolutely all struggle with that. Uh, all the way up to Yo-Yo Ma and Itzhak Perlman and the best of the best, they struggle with that as well. And part of what we try to train ourselves to do is stay extremely focused, just what you're playing. When a note's gone by, it's gone. Next, you're here. And when I prepare students for big auditions, which I often do, uh, you know, playing an orchestra audition, for instance, where you maybe have 10 minutes to show everything you have and you're going to be eliminated like that. And um, it's so important to stay focused exactly on the moment that you're playing. And if you do something that you're not happy with, it's gone and you just immediately go to the next thing. And that's a very uh, difficult and important skill to cultivate. We can cultivate it in practice. We have to cultivate it in practice so that when we get into a pressured situation, we're able to really stay moment-to-moment -moment focus. That's a very important part of learning an instrument. So thank you. And I would, I would add to that that the, um, that, uh, the kind of equipoise that allows you to do that is what well, we, we're practicing as we're sitting and doing sitting meditation. For the eight millionth time, your attention, which you had just nicely settled down into this moment in this breath, goes to Hawaii on a protracted <laughs> vacation. And you discover that, and you, and you say, whoops, okay, and I'm breathing out, and I'm breathing out, and I'm breathing in. 
and out, but it's great in Hawaii. You know, when could I go? I saw this great ad for a, maybe I'll just think about the ad for a second and I'll come back. And, and to be able to really let that go and to not have the, oh, I really, I look what a meditator I am. I'll never get any place because I keep getting roped into every possible fantasy about everything. Whoops, now I'm actually doing recrimination. Okay, let's just relax. Let's be here now. It's a constantly correcting to be here now. And people will say, well, my stuff is so much more interesting than here. Sitting on a, sitting on a chair, sitting on a zafo, in, out, in, out. And that's not interesting. It actually is phenomenally interesting. I said it before when I said, uh, really, if we're here, there are moments in which the mind grokks the fact that it, it, it could have been otherwise, but here we are. And this breath is still going in and out and in and out. And most profoundly, we know what an incredible gift it is to be alive. And uh, you used that phrase somewhere in, in what you said, I forgot what, the vitality of the moment, but you're, the vibrancy of the moment. You know, so nothing is happening. Everything is happening. First of all, the stuff we don't know, that everything is digesting and assimilating, doing all that. But just this body is sustaining itself in this miraculous hugely complex organism, so miraculously put together. So this organism that's miraculously putting to put together has been sitting a long time. And so in order to enable us to bring a freshly um, re renewed body to uh, Cliff's uh, lecture and slideshow and everything great, uh, in, 15, in 15 minutes. We're going to do a, uh, a combine a walking meditation, a, uh, a loving-kindness meditation, and a using the facilities meditation <laughs> at the same time. So you might want to know that uh, we have these facilities here and facilities in the trailer as well. Uh, so that should allow it to happen. Uh, the, loving, the walking meditation is you're going to have to walk to any of those places and to really feel yourself standing up and walking. And while you're up, stretch and move around so you'll be comfortable sitting for another hour. The loving-kindness meditation happens by itself when the mind is picked up, is a, at least a little bit uh, uh, exalted, if not way exalted, but I'm assuming yours is somewhere between moderately and way exalted. Uh, we'll have Barbara play in uh, uh, five bars of something just as you're going out or something or other, so you'll be exalted, exalted. And then on your own, but without talking, okay? We're going to have a talking lunch, but not a talking, walking, meditating 15 minutes. Just a, a quiet listening and doing all those other things and being back in here when you hear the bell ring in, five, in 15 minutes, be back here five minutes after that. But take a breath and listen for 15 seconds or 